Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figner, who is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. In our bi-monthly podcast, we talk to philosophers about their newly published books. Today, my guest is Kimberly Brownlee. We will be talking about her new book, Conscience and Conviction, The Case for Civil Disobedience, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Kimberly Brownlee is Associate Professor in Legal and Moral Philosophy at the University of Warwick. When confronted with a law that they find morally unconscionable, citizens sometimes engage in civil disobedience. They publicly break the law with a view to communicating their judgment that it is unjust. Citizens in similar situations sometimes take a different stance. They engage in conscientious objection. They quietly disobey, seeking only to keep their own conscience clear. A common view of these matters has it that the conscientious objector is deserving of special respect and even accommodation, whereas the civil disobedient engages in a politically risky and morally questionable practice. In her new book, Kimberly reverses this picture. She contends that properly conducted civil disobedience is more deserving of accommodation and respect than conscientious objection. Her case turns on a detailed and subtle analysis of the very concepts of conviction and conscience. This is a challenging and elegantly argued book. So let's turn now to the interview. Hello, Kimberly Brownlee. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, Today, folks, on New Books and Philosophy, my guest is Kimberly Brownlee. Her new book is titled Conscience and Conviction, The Case for Civil Disobedience, and it's just been published by Oxford University Press. Now, as the title of the book suggests, this book is a detailed examination and defense of civil disobedience. I recommend it highly to those interested in political and legal philosophy, of course. But the book will also be of interest, I think, to moral philosophers more generally, especially given that um, Kimberly offers uh, several analyses of uh, important moral concepts, including uh, the idea of uh, moral conviction. Um, but before we get into the details of the book, Kimberly, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write it? Okay, thanks, Bob. Um, <clears throat> so just to give you a bit about my background, I'm I'm Canadian. I grew up in um, the Fraser Valley, which is just outside Vancouver. And um, you know, I'd, I'd always been interested in in big questions like, you know, who are we and how should we live? But I, I didn't I didn't know that there was a, a discipline uh, philosophy that looked at these questions until probably the, the final years of, of high school when I, I did the International Baccalaureate program. And um, in, in that program, there's a, a compulsory theory of knowledge course. And, uh, you know, like, like many people who sort of end up in a field, you know, they, they talk about there was, a, there was a special teacher in the background. And, and that was certainly true for me that um, the man who taught theory of knowledge, uh, he was entirely irreverent in his teaching methods. So we would hold classes on the roof of the building. Uh, <laughs> we would hold classes where we all faced the outer walls instead of each other to see if this would somehow enhance discussion. 
Um, he, he was very fond of saying at disconcerting moments, how do you know? And uh, so, so he, you know, he, he, was a, he was very inspiring as someone just wholly animated by big ideas. And from him, you know, I learned about uh, some of the, you know, interesting thought experiments, Nozick's um, utility monster, Nozick's experience machine, uh, the idea of a brain in a vat. And, and, and I was absolutely hooked. And uh, from there, I went on to study philosophy at um, at McGill, and then at Cambridge, and then at Oxford. And um, the 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 book project um, started life uh, about ten years ago in in as as the focus of my of my D field dissertation. And um, the uh, I think the what what led me to this topic, the topic of civil disobedience. There were, there were two things. One was a real fascination with the lives of people like like Gandhi, um, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, more recently Aung San Suu Kyi, the, these people who seem to embody a certain kind of wise integrity, who who were willing to be you know entirely self-exposing in uh, in honoring a great cause. Um, you know, someone like Gandhi, you know, was able to say fairly truthfully, my life is my message. And and so there's you know, there's a somewhat romantic starting point, but really wanting to understand what what was it to to be that kind of wise being and you know sort of how did that fit into a, a broader picture of the way we should live. And the the second interest related to some some something of a, a psychological question of why do we show deference to people who assert conscience, people who claim to be animated by a deep conviction, because it's not just the the great characters like you know Gandhi and King and Aung San Suu Kyi that we we respect. We tend to be quite deferential to you know the the doctor who just refuses point blank to perform abortions, or the civil registrar who refuses categorically to perform same sex marriage ceremonies. We tend to be very responsive to this, and we tend to look to see whether there's a consistency between what these people say and and how they behave. And when we see one, you know when we see them sort of putting their money where their mouth is, we tend to take their testimony very seriously as, you know, evidence that perhaps we should have similar commitments. You know, we don't necessarily sign up for them, but we, we tend to give a lot of credit to beliefs that are backed up by um, serious conviction. And and so this this idea of genuine conviction I want to explore because you know, we need to be somewhat cautious about our our, our tendency to be so deferential. Um, you know, a, an assertion of conviction is not the same thing as a genuine conviction, and a genuine conviction is not the same thing as a morally admirable conviction. And so, I, I wanted to get a sense of you know what the parameters of you know the sort of the respect we should have for the wise being are. And what parameters of respect we should have for people who are serious and sincere about their convictions, but maybe don't meet that you know high test of you know being truly morally admirable. And so, so those are the animating interests, and um, and led me to you know to explore the the relation between conscience, conviction, and and civil disobedience.
Well, fantastic. If you'll just indulge me, um, just <laughs> if I can ask one more bio uh, I'm sorry, biographical question. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm fascinated myself, for what it's worth, um, with um, the question of how, how many people get into philosophy by way of epistemology. Right. Um, it seems to me a lot. Uh, and as somebody who, um, in my own work, I'm interested in, in epistemology and political philosophy. Um, so in describing your, your your introduction to philosophy and getting hooked, there was a, a lot of talk of, you know, um, uh, thought experimenty kinds of things. Um, was there any particular um, motivation? to uh, most of your your, your work uh, uh, professionally is is about um, moral and legal and political philosophy. Um, was there any point at which um, you consciously made a decision to pr pursue that uh, despite the fact that what got you into philosophy was – at least it sounds like it was something in epistemology? <laughs> it was epistemology. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know that – I saw those disciplines or those sub branches of philosophy or, or even see them now as, as being very, you know, there are sharp lines between them. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one question I raise in the book is whether we, we can know from our first person perspective, whether we're actually cultivating a genuinely admirable conviction or whether, you know, just from our, our first person perspective, we, we can't know that, or at least we can't know that for much of the time that it's, you know, it's really, um, that we're quite fallible when it comes to our, our, our moral beliefs. And, and so I think the, yeah, the interest in epistemology is very much still an, an animating concern. And I, and I think, you know, the questions about theory of knowledge that I found most, were pre most pressing were those that related to the, you know, the, the normative, how, you know, how should we live? How should we see ourselves? What, you know, how much confidence can we have in our moral decisions? Um, and not, you know, just not, um, yeah. So, so, you know, epistemology applies to a, a wider range of topics than, than just moral philosophy, but, uh, um, it was the moral ones that, that really right. animated me. Well, that sounds, that sounds right to me. Um, so uh, let me ask sort of one more. We'll, we'll, we'll move now into talking about, uh, about the book. Um, but let me ask a, a, a question that um, – about sort of some animating ideas in the book um, because it seems, uh, if I'm reading you right, that um, there are two kinds of commitments in moral philosophy now broadly understood that seem to be um, – in the background for a lot of the book, but sometimes they they, they, they come into the foreground. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, of course, but um, it strikes me that you have in moral philosophy um, certain Aristotelian commitments on the one hand and then also um, certain commitments to uh, a pluralism about values um, and it's certain crucial, I would say, points in the book um, – these um, commitments, I think, do some work um, uh, for the argument. So, could you tell us just a little bit about these broader kinds of commitments that that that, that you bring to bear on on the on the topic of the book? Yeah. So, with with respect to um, a moral framework, I, you know, if if I had to pin my colors to to a label, it you know it would be. Um, Aristotelianism, and it would be would be virtue ethics that I find the most appealing of of the traditional Western theories. Um, I think you know one idea in Aristotle that is very attractive is is that philosophy is 
something you practice and and you know morality and 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 virtue these are, are practical disciplines not theoretical disciplines and there's some um, you know there's a, a a tradition that's developing out, outside western philosophy um you know more more so in psychology and, and contemplative neuroscience that is highlighting the extent to which the the cult the practical cultivation of of virtue is interrelated with the cultivation of of understanding um, you know sort of understanding of the functioning of your own mind and your own body that you know people who practically cultivate integrity and generosity and compassion they they according to the the neuroscience they tend to have more accurate memories um, of their experiences they tend to be more accurate in their assessments of how other people are feeling um, and and so there's a I think there's a nice, you know, a nice link between how Aristotle saw philosophy and saw, saw virtue, and and how a, you know a lot of what's coming out of Western science, you know, shows shows about the the cultivation of of understanding. So you know, in a way, it might seem uh, you know to some extent strange that I you know sign up for Aristotelianism and and virtue ethics because in part of the book, um, I do take a few shots at. A certain version of virtue ethics, namely one that focuses on the the virtuous person, and mm-hmm. I'm skeptical about the notion that there could be a, an ideal of the virtuous person. Um, and my my skepticism focuses on the the fact that in some presentations, the virtuous person is seen as immutable, perfect, fully embodying um, all of the virtues. And that leaves out the possibility of moral aspirations to improve, um, to improve morally. And and yet I think it's a, a key piece of being a human being and being a moral human being that you aspire to improve morally. And for many of the great elements of morality, there's no or there, there isn't necessarily an upper limit. There may not be a perfect point of loving kindness or compassion these might be things that are limitlessly progressive and so the the idea of a virtuous person that embodies all virtue that restricts the way we can think about virtue and the cultivation of virtue so so i'm in one sense very friendly to virtue ethics but in, in another sense would would criticize some of how you know virtue is is presented in that tradition um, with respect to pluralism, uh, that is the moral framework that that I, I work in work with when it comes to how we should see value, how we should view our actions. That you know, I, I embrace the idea again, sort of more from classical philosophy, that you know, m- human life can be tragic, that we can often act wrongly, that you know, some of the the great goods cannot sit happily together, and. Um, that framework, you know, I found quite interesting to work with in thinking about the concept of, of conscience, because um, you know when we think about conscience, you know, there's there are lots of ideas that come with it. One is the idea that 
of a, of a clear conscience. Um, and another is, you know, the idea of a, of a demand of conscience. And, and both of these are often treated as sort of, you know, a, a, sort of a binary that, you know, if you have a clear conscience, then you've done the morally right thing, all things considered. And so one thing I try to do is to see whether we can have a concept of, of genuine conscience as moral understanding, but situate it within a framework of moral pluralism. Uh, so to be, to have conscience when, when we can't always get it right, um, you know, just inescapably, we're going to act wrongly sometimes in, in that framework, having conscience means being sensitive to the competing values and understanding what our moral responsibilities are and being gentle with ourselves when it comes to judging how we've behaved. But, um, maybe when we get into the details of the book, I can, I can say more about that. Sure. Let's 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 move then straight away uh, because um, this is actually the 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 beginning of the book um, where you want to um, provide an analysis of what you call conscientious moral conviction, and um, you're very keen uh, in, in the first chapter and, and and the second chapter indeed um, to make a distinction uh, that I found very interesting and compelling in a way uh, between conscientiousness. And conscience. Um, so why don't we begin there? Can you tell us a little bit about, well, on the one hand, what conscientious moral conviction is all about and how conscientiousness uh, differs from conscience? Right. So, um, yeah, th this, this kind of task is, is always a challenging one because, you know, the, these terms, they're cognate terms. They, they have the same etymology and they, you know, certainly sound similar. So, so trying sure. to show that these are quite different things is, um, you know, <laughs> an entertaining project. And, uh, you know, in the book, you mentioned this in the book, we yeah. should add that the, the, the cognate uh, status of them makes it a little bit tricky to, to, to prize them apart. But right. Yes, please. Well, and I invoke, um, the example of, of rights, uh, as, as an, <laughs> an analogy that, uh, you know, in, in liberal philosophy, there's the concept of, of rights, possessing rights, and there's the concept of something being right, and those two are, are cognates, but we've managed, for the most part, to pull them apart. You can have a right to do wrong, um, and uh, you know, so having rights doesn't mean you're doing right. So, so I try to pull apart conscientious conviction and conscience, and um, one way to sort of see that this can be an intuitive distinction is to, to think about you know, the way we use the term conscientiousness sometimes or, or often, it, we do use it descriptively. Um, so, you know, someone can be very conscientious in, in doing something that has absolutely no value. So, the, you know, the secretary who, you know, conscientiously, you know, laboriously fills out each form by hand instead of typing them when that would be much more efficient. That's a, that's a use of con conscientiousness that... Um, that we're familiar with. So, you know, conscientiousness as something that's fastidious, pedantic, sincere, serious, someone who's really committed, but could be mistaken about the value of their commitment. And that I want to distinguish from, from conscience. Um, and, and conscience, I understand not descriptively, but evaluatively. It has a, it has a moral, a positive moral valence, and and this too has some common sense, ordinary language, um, you know, support for it. 
one being, you know, you know, some of those other terms, those phrases that go with conscience that I mentioned, like a clear conscience, a demand of conscience, answering to conscience. Um, you know, these are these are lofty ideas, and the book. You know, I try to show that there's there's important work that each of these concepts can do, and how we think about people and how we respect people, but they are quite different quite different things. Right. So, uh, and then employing that distinction uh, in talking now about con- conscientious conviction. Um, you offer uh, 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 an analysis of these different elements of, of what um, of what conscientious conviction is. Can you can you tell us a little bit about sure. about that? Yeah. So, in, in my view, to have a conscientious conviction, you have to do more than just act in the way that you think you you ought to act. Um, you have to, in addition, judge yourself and other people by a common moral standard. So you have to believe that it's wrong, not only when you engage in a certain type of conduct, but when anybody engages in that conduct. So if you think it's wrong to eat meat, um, you have to think it's wrong when, when anyone eats meat. And, you know, it's a pro tanto wrong, not a all things considered wrong. Um, so that's the first additional element the the two other additional elements which distinguish my my view from um those you'll find in the literature and actually there there aren't many analyses of conscientious conviction in the literature but the the two additional elements that i think are important but under acknowledged are non-evasion and dialogic effort so in my view to to have a sincere conscientious conviction about something you know moral conviction you have to be willing to be seen to hold the view you have you have to not try to evade the possible repercussions of your view and you also have to be willing to try to engage other people in deliberation about the merits of your view you have to be willing to communicate your reasons for holding your view um and you know part partly that's because in communicating at the level of reason you show that you believe your view is sufficiently credible that it can be given arguments in its defense and through the communicative effort you also confirm your non-evasiveness, your your willingness to be seen, and um, the, the the picture uh, that's on the cover of the book sort of in, embodies this this idea of conscientious conviction. Um, with, you know, the principle that I've given for this idea of conscientious conviction is the the communicative principle of conscientiousness, and the the picture on the cover of the book is um, uh, it has a painting by Norman Rockwell called The Jury, uh, which was um, on the cover of uh, the Saturday Evening Post in 1959. And in this scene, um, you know, you, you have 11 men and one woman uh, in a jury room. And, you know, it's, there's smoke in the air and, you know, the people, you know, the men have shed their jackets. And you just, you have this image of tension. 
and in this picture, the, the woman is sitting in a chair and she's surrounded by 10 of the 11 men. And you can see that they are united in opposition against her. And then there's one man who's just sleeping at the side of the room, not engaged at all. <laughs> and the woman, she she has a straight back. She has her arms folded. She's got this strong look on her face. And she's, you can see she's entirely alone. She's exposed. And she's, she's the dissenter. She's the, you know, the holdout. And in that willingness to be seen, and through her attentive look and, and engagement, you can see she's also trying to communicate. That embodies a lot of the, you know, what I've called the, the communicative principle of conscientiousness. And there's a, there's a strong visual contrast between her and the man who's sleeping to the side. He, he might well agree with her, but he's not exposing himself. He's not trying to engage in, in discussion. So that's my picture of, of conscientious conviction. And, and it contrasts with one that sees conscientious conviction as a much more modest, personal, private type of activity. Um, in, in my view, that kind of activity it raises a doubt about the person's sincerity. If you're, if you're not willing to be seen, if you're not willing to expose yourself and bear the potential risks of dissenting, can we really take your, your conviction seriously? Right. One thing that I found very striking about the Norman Rockwell painting, um, the, the book, uh, folks, the book opens with a discussion of this painting. It's very striking. Um, is the, um, the the distribution of the crumpled up pieces of paper, which I take are jury votes, right. <laughs> uh, which are all at her feet in a way. Um, like, and no. um, there's nothing going on with the, the guy on the other end of the photo who seems to be falling asleep. It's sort of <laughs> um, maybe they have thrown their votes, votes at her at in her. a way. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, it's a really, really marvelous painting. And a, a very suitable uh, um, um, image for, for for the kind of, of view you have about uh, conscientious conviction. Um, so l let me move then. Um, uh, one of the the, the sort of uh, um, main moves in the book is um, to uh, show uh, that practices of civil disobedience, as you understand them, um, are more defensible and maybe in certain cases um, much more worthy of our admiration or respect or maybe even esteem than what we might uh, uh, think of as or was commonly thought of as conscientious objection, this sort of personal objection. Um, and so um, in this respect, um, you say in the book that you're going to reverse a familiar liberal picture, which – um, regards the um, the conscientious objector as um, engaging in a noble project of being authentic or true to to herself, uh, and the civil disobedient as somebody who's probably taking things too far or might be on the the verge of being a fanatic or in some other way is doing something that's very questionable, unlike the, the conscientious objector. Um, so you've got a, a couple of arguments that are supposed to vindicate the civil disobedient. Um, and in this regard, uh, one of those arguments you call the conviction argument. Um, uh, can you tell us uh, about the conviction argument and how it vindicates or, or, or puts a, a, a more positive gloss on the civil disobedient? Sure. So um, 
the 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 standard liberal view, and you know, in in a way, it's it's unfair for me to lump Rawls and 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 Raz and you know Singer and all you know all these people who've had liberal positions altogether. But there there is a, a a somewhat common consensus that civil disobedience is a strategic act, um, and that it's aimed at changing the law. It's a deliberate breach of law. Um, that is communicative and and is granted to you know it's it's acknowledged as conscientious in in the liberal literature, but it's not on a par with with personal conscientious objection. Um, so you know, and, and this is treated in different in different ways. So you know, John Rawls he. He wants to make a case for civil disobedience, but he he does it by taking a very narrow view of what can count as civil disobedience and a very narrow view of when it's justifiable. So for Rawls to to engage in civil disobedience, your act has to be public in the sense that you warn authorities in advance that you're going to break the law. It has to be nonviolent. It has to be civil or conscientious. And it has to be done with a, a fidelity to the legal system. So someone like Gandhi was not engaged in civil disobedience because he, you know, he was a revolutionary. He did not have a fidelity to the British system in India. And someone like Nelson Mandela was not engaged in civil disobedience because he advocated constrained forms of violence like sabotage. And many others, you know, who, whose acts we might think are civilly disobedient, um, you know, people who hold sit-ins in, in government buildings in order to protest the Iraq war, or people who release animals from research laboratories and then, you know, publicize it afterward, they're not civilly disobedient for roles because they didn't warn authorities in advance. So, you know, he has this very narrow view of what it is, and then a narrow view of when it's justified. It has to respond to a substantial injustice. It has to be taken as a last resort, and it has to be done in coordination with other minorities. Only then can you say you're engaged in justifiable civil disobedience. Now, that's the that's the best known of the of the liberal of the liberal views. Um, you know, Joseph Joseph Raz has a a broader picture. He doesn't restrict civil disobedience as narrowly as as Rawls does. And he has a, a broader picture of, of justifiability, but he too um, argues that you know if we were to try and defend a practice of, of conscientious disobedience, if we were try, going to try and argue that there is a right, a moral right, to engage in these practices, we will be able to make a stronger case for personal, private disobedience than for civil disobedience. And and the reasons relate in part to the risks of civil disobedience. Um, That, you know, this can be seen as, you know, an activity that would inspire other people to break the law, people who are less committed, less serious. Um, It can be seen as, you know, improperly flouting the law, particularly in a, in a liberal society where, you know, if there are decent ordinary channels for participation, you should be using those, you shouldn't be resorting to breach of law. Um, so, you know, this is sort of the, the liberal picture. And the, the thing that I argue is that if, if indeed sincere conscientious conviction is, as I've described it, uh, that it requires non-evasion and communicative effort, then breaches of law, like civil disobedience, which are 
communicative um, and non-evasive, they have a better claim to the protections that liberal societies tend to give to conscientiousness. Um, you know, liberal societies tend to be respectful when possible of demonstrations of sincere conviction. And, you know, and some of that stems from a, you know, a respect for competing views of, of the good life, for, you know, the, the plurality of values that people can espouse. And, you know, my, my thought is that private conscientious objection that doesn't seek to engage others in deliberation has less of a claim to the protections of conscientiousness because, well, first of all, we can, there's this lingering epistemic worry about the sincerity of a private objector, specifically an, an evasive objector, and there's the loss of benefit to the society. This person isn't trying to support or, or promote something that they claim they think is very valuable. Um, so so the, the conviction argument rests, you know, in, in large part on my account of sincere conscientiousness and defends civil disobedience as the practice that best reflects sincere conviction. Excellent. Um, so uh, I guess one sort of quick question, if I, if I could follow up, um, about the, the sort of um, – the, the requirement uh, or the, the the aspect of civil disobedience that is aimed at um, uh, invoking or, or provoking maybe might be the better word uh, a kind of um, discourse or dialogue uh, of, with other with one's fellow citizens. Um, uh, what if um, what if uh, I what if somebody thinks that um, one's fellow citizens are in a way, hopeless, um, <laughs> right. or um, you know, or or or, or hopeless, maybe maybe um, are too far gone, or are, are so blind to uh, what's plainly unjust that um, more talking or engagement is 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 a kind of um, you know uh, inefficient use of, of of one's time. I mean, I'm wondering if just there aren't cases in which someone might say that the the, the more personal disobedience, the Conscientious objection stuff might might be um, might be the appropriate reaction if one thinks that the dialogical aims of the the civil disobedient are in a way um, uh, silly or foolish or or, or, right. or so if people are so far gone there's nothing to do but try to not be complicit in what they're doing right yeah so I I, I guess. The thought would be that you know the the private conscient objector has has decided that you know that she can't wait for you know there to be enough public discussion that people realize the laws should be changed. She's she's going to you know follow her own sense of what is right and um, you know and 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 really maybe has good reasons for thinking that you know a change in law is presently unrealizable. Um, yeah, and I, I think there's a as a valid con concern there. One, one point would be that um, when you engage in civil disobedience, you aren't necessarily addressing your government. Uh, you know, Gandhi, who I very much would say was a civil disobedient, was not addressing British rulers in India. You know, he, he was a addressing you know, the, 
local people of, of India. And, and he actually had a very inclusive view of the people he was addressing. So, you know, he, he said, you know, we, we cannot ignore the untouchables. We, we have to, you know, every person um, can, can be part of uh, this nonviolent, non-hating resistance of, you know, the domination of, of British rule in India. So, you know, your, your audience can be, uh, you know, the citizens within your community, your audience can also be the international community. Um, you know, if, if you find that there's, you know, there's just no one at home receptive to your, to your efforts, uh, that, that then, you know, you may have to try and garner support from outside, you know, Mandela, um, and, you know, Oliver Tambo, you know, Oliver Tambo did a lot of recruiting or, you know, of, of sympathy and support for the, the ANC and the, the anti-apartheid cause. And, and, you know, that was in a way to help build up support at home. So there's, you know, I, I, there's a, there's a, I think you have to be, you know, in, in a way it's, it's, it's a different request to say you have to try to engage as much as possible with as many people as possible. That's a different request from saying, you know, you have to wait for a better season. Um, you know, Martin right. Luther King Jr. was, was very frustrated by uh, Christian, white Christian um, ministers and, 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 you know, the, the local community who said to him, wait for a better season. Uh, you know, they should have been on his side. He said, you know, you share these values, you should be supporting it. So, you know, when you're going to engage in civil disobedience, you have to, there has to be, um, a set of constraints, you know, or, or, you know, there has to be quite a, a rich set of expectations of just how hard you're going to try before you resort to more questionable practices. And I'm not thinking here of private objection. I'm thinking of, of sort of, you know, more radical protest or the, the use of coercive, deliberately coercive measures or more extreme violence that you have to have exhausted, um, you know, you have to try the other options a lot more than than you know perhaps you might think you'd have to before you could even contemplate stepping outside constrained breaches of law okay um that, that's very helpful um the the second sort of arm of uh, of of the argument apart from the conviction argument is the conscience argument um uh where you you, you deploy the conscience argument to defend what you call conscience driven disobedience um can you tell us about that second line of argument sure so the um, uh, I, I should just say first that the the conviction argument does not focus on the value of a person's belief. So, in in principle, the conviction argument can be made on behalf of of bigots and xenophobes and neo Nazis and you know think think of whatever sort of anti. Uh, intolerant, anti-liberal position you like, the, the conviction argument starts with this thought about what it is to be sincere in your beliefs and then argues that we have to think about what it is to be autonomous feeling beings who are capable of deep beliefs. So, uh, you know, underlying the conviction argument is a commitment to a principle of humanism, that society and the law must recognize that it's part of our dignity, part of our autonomy, that 
we are able to cultivate deep and sincere convictions, you know, possibly mistaken convictions, but it's, it's part of being reasoning, autonomous feeling beings that we can have deep convictions. And it's part of having deep convictions that we try to express them and try to be seen to be holding them. So the, the conviction argument and the case it tries to make in support of civil disobedience, it actually is is very inclusive, and, and that's one way in which my view differs from a lot of liberal positions, most notably Rawls. You know, Rawls says that, um, you know, civil disobedience, certainly the, the only kind of civil disobedience we should try to accommodate is going to be civil disobedience that's in response to substantial injustice. And I want to argue with, with the conviction argument that we should consider protecting some civil disobedience that is animated by injustice. And and my argument really lies on, on this humanistic principle of respect for autonomy and dignity. So that's that's the conviction argument. And the conscience argument is much narrower. Um, right. this, this focuses on the civil disobedience that is genuinely morally responsive. So this this argument is not available to xenophobes and bigots and and uh, you know people who are, are intolerant of, of others' views. It's not even available to misguided do-gooders. It's available to people who have cultivated a moral sensitivity and responsiveness that is informing their breach of law. So you know, the people that I have in mind here, you know, would be would be people like Gandhi and Aung San Chi, that they they embody this wise integrity, this practical set of moral skills, um, which, you know, is, is animating their breach of law. So the the conscience argument, it's um it's much stronger and much and much narrower. And the the book is framed to bring out these two arguments, the conviction argument and the conscience argument, in moral terms. And then and that's in part one. And then in part two, to use each of those arguments to support a distinct legal defense for civil disobedience. So the, the conviction argument supports an excusatory defense, what I've called the demands of conviction defense. And the conscience argument supports a justificatory defense, um, the necessity defense. And uh, we'll probably get into that a bit more. But um, with, I just say a little bit more about, about conscience. Um, so in, in the book, I, I flesh out what conscience, conscience is. And, and then I try to link it or to, to show how it's linked to a certain understanding <clears throat> of our moral responsibilities, um, that once we've cultivated a, a fairly nuanced and sophisticated set of practical moral skills, we will appreciate the kinds of moral responsibilities we have in virtue of our distinctive moral roles. And um, in, in the third chapter of the book, I, I try to show that this picture has significant implications for the way that public officials should look at their offices. Um, I argue that when executing the functions of your office, and, and this can include, you know, our, our position as citizens, not just, you know, official, you know, standing of prosecutors or police or um, soldier and so on. But when, when thinking about our official expectations um, that our state and society have of us, 
we have to think of them in relation to the underlying moral roles, moral responsibilities that animate and legitimate those offices. And so when there's a tension between what's demanded of us officially and the moral responsibilities that underline and legitimate the office, we should privilege the underlying moral responsibilities. And so the, the example I give in, or one example I give in the book is, um, it's quite a sad one, of uh, two community support police officers in the UK um, who saw a child drowning in a pond and instead of jumping into the pond to try to save the drowning child, they radioed for an expert rescue team to come to the scene. Right. And, in, of course, in the intervening time, the child died. And they were praised by their superior for following proper procedure, but they were censured by UK society and, indeed, by um, former Home Secretary David Blunkett, who said that, you know, rescuing the child, jump, you know, jumping in to save the child, this is what would be reasonable to expect of someone as, as a human being, you know, ne never mind the job. Right. And the, the picture I would, or the, the view I would take of that was, in addition to it being appropriate, you know, just for a human being to respond this way, these were also, you know, they were community support officers whose underlying moral responsibilities were to, you know, sort of take care of their community, to protect the interests of the people in their community. And so in addition to it being just the natural human response to try to save the child, they had special responsibilities as community support officers to try to rescue the child, never mind the rule book. Um, so, so that's... Uh, I try to use the concept of conscience and moral understanding to show you know, that, that actually when we're looking at the moral expectations of us, we have to engage in a lot of first-order moral reasoning. We cannot defer to formal demands. Right. So um, that, that's, that, that's very helpful. Um, let's move then to, the, to what you had foreshadowed a, a few moments ago about the, the sort of legal uh, dimensions to this, which is the the second part of the book, um, because you do run um, the conviction argument and the conscience argument wind up becoming um, or playing a role in two different kinds of legal uh, uh, defenses. Um, one is the demand, as you say, the demands of the de demands of conviction uh, defense for civil disobedience, and the other is the necessity defense. Uh, can you can you sketch those uh, those moves for us? Right. So the. The demands of conviction defense, um, this, my, my thoughts on this started uh, in, in a response to um, some work done by Jeremy Horder, who has a book called Excusing Crime. And in, in the book, he fleshes out what he calls the, the demands of conscience defense. But because of the special way I'm understanding conscience, I, you know, I've, I've distanced myself from, from uh, his terminology. But he does mean what I'm calling the demands of conviction defense. And, and what he argues is that, you know, the, the state, um, the state asks too much when it asks us always to put the law first. And he thinks that, you know, a, a proper respect for private conviction, um, 
means that you should be able to offer an excuse when you breach the law in some cases. Now, he does not think this argument that this defense applies to civil disobedience. He thinks it only applies to a very limited set of private acts of objection. Um, but uh, it, it was his his thought about, you know, a, a legal excuse based on conviction that, that got me started. And my, my claim is that, um, first of all, civil disobedience is the more likely candidate for a practice that can claim this defense because it has um, you know, better claims to the language of conscientiousness. And I offer additional arguments for why this defense makes sense. So the, you know, the first argument appeals to autonomy. And, um, you know, here, Porter, Porter and I are, are in agreement to some extent, uh, though part of my story is that autonomy is expressive. Autonomy is communicative. And um, respecting full autonomy means respecting our our need to express and be seen when we have deep beliefs. But that's, that's one argument for the defense, a respect for autonomy and an appreciation that society and the law place overly heavy burdens on us when they ask us always to privilege the law before our personal commitments. The other argument I offer, and this goes beyond hoarder, it appeals to psycholo- the psychological costliness um, of disregarding our personal commitments. So it's, it's, it's related to autonomy, but it's sort of one step earlier in the story that in order to have autonomy, we have to have a certain psychological integrity, um, sort of, a, you know, the capacity to have commitments. And there, it's in the interests of the state and the law to make some space for our privileging of our commitments, because if, if that's not there, then we may face you know, the, the, the threat of acrasia, a weakness of will, that we won't be able to give priority to the law in cases where it would be appropriate for us to give priority to the law. We'll find it hard to follow the, the good laws as well as you know, the, the laws or you know, the, following any law will become, become more difficult for us. Mm-hmm. And this, um, you know, this links to an Aristotelian idea, one that Gerald Postema uh, 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 has discussed, which is um, that you know, the, the cultivation of you know, reasoning ability and, and, and judgment, these, these have to be exercised. Um, and so if the law always demands that we put the law first and, you know, sort of follow its reasoning without reflection or, or judgment, that in a way we're dulling our capacities to, to reason. And, and that's, that's not in the interest of a liberal democratic society. A liberal democratic society benefits when its people are reflective and responsive and independent-minded about their judgments. So the... Those are the, the two main arguments for the demands of conviction defense. It's you know, protection of autonomy and respect for our psychological integrity. Right. And um, what about the necessity right. defense? So the, the necessity defense, um, this, was, this was interesting territory for me to explore because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the, the fact that 
civil disobedience have a notoriously difficult time arguing necessity. And uh, it was only in you know, exploring the literature on the necessity defense that I realized that that problem is not unique to civil disobedience. That's a problem about the necessity defense, that there's a lot of skepticism <laughs> in uh, in the Anglo-American tradition uh, and in, you know, in the courts and, and um, by judges about necessity as a defense for breach of law. So um, there are different accounts of, you know, what you are claiming when you assert the necessity of your breach of law. Um, Some accounts say that you're uh, arguing that your act is the lesser of two evils, um, that it would have been worse had you not acted. Um, Other accounts, you know, frame it more in terms of sort of the the moral, you know, the involuntariness of of the act. There's a compulsive, compulsion element that you couldn't have done anything but this act. And um, the the account of necessity that I found mo- most interesting in the literature, though ultimately ended up disagreeing with it, was um, one advanced by Ian Dennis, where he argues that we really should take a, a pluralistic view of necessity. That you know there are there are many different dimensions to necessity, and there are actually many different defenses in the law that have a necessity element in them, even if they don't go under that heading. So self defense third-party defense, public defense. Um, you know, there's greater recognition of medical necessity, uh, duress of circumstances. These are, these are all domains in which there's a necessity element, but they aren't always given that, that label. And so he, he says that there's, sort of, there's a family of defenses here that um, we, we can call necessity defenses. And I found that quite, quite attractive, but I disagreed with Dennis when he narrows the kinds of concerns that could animate necessity to dangers and and emergencies where there's a risk of death or very serious injury. And Mm -hmm. in in my view, that takes into account, you know, some important realms of of necessity, but it ignores a more humanistic picture of, of our needs. So, you know, humans, we have needs not just to be protected from serious injury and, and risk of death, but we also have needs to be recognized, needs to be, you know, politically recognized and to be to be respected as persons, to have our political freedoms honored, not to be subject to the domination of someone else. And so the account of needs-based necessity that I flesh out and, and say, this is what, you know, if, if you're acting in civil disobedience in support of this, you know, you can make this, this case. These needs are, are it's, it's a richer set, um, a more pluralistic set, but it's, it's also a more humanistic picture of, of, of our needs. And so my argument is that, you know, when someone's acting in civil disobedience in defense of these types of needs and are, you know, essentially our, our basic human rights, um, they can argue necessity. So just to give one example, mm-hmm. um, you know, prisoners, people who are long-term prisoners, people who are held in solitary confinement, people who are, you know, life, life prisoners, it's in their interests often to be as, as compliant as possible, um, you know, the, to, to engage in acts of protest in prison is 
not in your interests. And you know, there's a bit of an irony there that you sort of show that you're best able to rejoin society and to um, you know, contribute as a, an active, reflective participant by being as you know passive and as and as submissive as you can. Um, yeah. But for for those kinds of people, you know, where there's few opportunities for them to defend their own rights, assert their rights, to engage in civil disobedience in support of their rights, um, you know, for example, in, in support of the right not to be subjected to extremely cruel, degrading, or inhumane treatment, that would be a kind of civil disobedience that could plead necessity, in my view. Right. Um, and so together, um, these all, uh, th- these arguments uh, sort of uh, come together in, in, in the claim that um, there is a, a kind of moral right to civil disobedience. And the book closes with a, 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 a really fascinating uh, a claim that um, uh, along with the moral right to civil disobedience, there is a moral right to not be punished for it. Um <laughs> Could you tell us about that? Because I find that, abs- I mean, very, very interesting and, and provocative. Yeah. So um, the the idea of a moral right to disobedience, this, in, in its general form, this comes out of the idea of a moral right to conscientious action. Um, right. And so, and, and that indeed comes out of the idea of a, of a moral right to to expression. So we have moral rights to to express ourselves and Part of that includes action that's expressive of our conviction, and you know, hopefully the, the story leading up to that point shows why acts expressive of our conviction have to include some suitably constrained communicative breaches of law, uh, so we get, we get civil disobedience. And we have, you know, hopefully, <laughs> I've shown that there's a moral right, a general moral right, to engage in, in civil disobedience. The, the moral right against punishment flows somewhat naturally from that in that the way I understand a right of conduct is that it provides defeasible protection against all forms of interference. So to say you have a right to engage in civil disobedience, a moral right means amongst other things, that you have a right to be protected in that activity. You have a right not to be interfered with during the course of that activity and a right not to be punished for it subsequently. Now, in saying that, I'm, I'm not saying that you have a right not to be judged. You know, when we, when we say that we have a, a moral right to free speech, we don't mean that then people cannot criticize us for what we say we mean that they cannot prevent us from speaking. And so the, the same goes for, for the moral right to civil disobedience and the right against punishment, that you are not immune to criticism, but you are protected from legal interference. And, and that view, um, sort of two, two things to note. One, you know, it is a moral right that I'm talking about, and, and moral rights are different from legal rights. And it is a defeasible right. So it could well be that in in some situation, you know, that moral right is trumped, is overridden by other rights or by, you know, more, more pressing general concerns. But if that happens, then 
the civil disobedient really is owed an apology and perhaps compensation. Um, you know, it might seem strange for the state or for a judge to be apologizing, you know, to to civil disobedient for punishing them, but that that is that is sort of the appropriate response, uh, you know, given that there there is this moral protection, and there's some, you know, there are some interesting cases in uh, uh, you know interesting court cases where judges have tried to honor a certain respect um, or to show a certain respect for civil disobedience. So judges who have deliberately praised the characters of um, campaigners uh, and especially, you know, there's one case where um, the jury found a set of uh, environmentalists guilty um, for for planning to commit vandalism um, in a coal plant and the judge praised the campaigners' characters um, and imposed non-custodial sentences. So, try to signal that, you know, you know, the, the the jury had made their decision. That was fine, but that this was a very different type of activity from ordinary offending. This was one that deserved respect, um, and indeed, you know, from the looks of it, in the judge's eyes, quite, you know, should not have been uh, should not have been punished. So, the um, in a way, the the story about the right against punishment, it's. It is derivative of the broader picture about the moral right to engage in civil disobedience. Right. Well, um, Kimberly, you've you've given us a lot of your time, and uh, the the book is really really great. So uh, I, I congratulate you uh, on it, and uh, recommend it very very strongly to everybody who um, I, I run into who has interest in these issues. Um, last question: uh, um, uh, What's what's next? Where, where, where are you Where are you off to next in your thinking? <laughs> Uh, so my the, the work uh, the, you know that I've done on on civil disobedience, it, I, I think one of my underlying interests is in um, it's in communication and it's in in sociability. Um, what are our what are our duties as citizens? What are our duties as people when we interact with each other socially? And so my my current project um, is uh, I'm working on a book that's provisionally titled No Entry. Uh, the the evils of social deprivation and one of the core ideas there is that um, we have a human right uh, against social deprivation and when I'm talking about social deprivation I'm not talking about economic deprivation you know like poverty and and you know need for basic subsistence and so on I do mean social deprivation that there's a there's an unacknowledged human right against a persisting lack of minimally adequate opportunities for decent human contact, um, and you know, this is a—it's been—it's been a really interesting project so far because um, you know, <laughs> it's one of those claims that some people think is is absolutely obvious and, and in a way trivial, and other people think is completely. Uh, I think one person described it as creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and and I think you know the one worry is that this is potentially very illiberal. That um, right. you know, to say we have social human rights, so you know, what exactly does that demand of people? Because social resources are are special; they're not like economic resources or even political resources, where you're not requiring anything of individuals personally. But to say we have a human right to decent opportunities for social interaction, somebody has to be providing that. 
Um, right. And so, you know, one one answer to this worry is to, is fairly standard move to say that well, governments are primary duty bearers when it comes to human rights, and and so for someone who um, who lacks opportunities incidentally, you know, someone who's disabled or, or someone who's elderly and who's unable to remedy um, their, their social isolation, governments can provide regulated social contact. It also, you know, in focusing on governments as primary duty bearers, allows us to say that governments themselves should not be engaging in practices that are socially privative. So, um, you know, solitary confinement as a method of, of punishment, that is a human rights violation on this picture. Um, and the use of detention, certain types of detention in immigration facilities, uh, you know, the U.S., um, there many people are held in isolation who have not been convicted for a crime. It's not a method of punishment, but just a, a method of segregation and control. That is also a human rights violation. So, so this, this starting idea... Um, I'm hoping to flesh out into a, a broader account of the ethics of sociability. What are our social duties to each other? What social rights can we assert? What is the general value of sociability? What are the virtues of sociability? Um, and there's, you know, there's overlap with discussions about the ethics of care. But this picture, the ethics of sociability, it's not distinctly relationship-based. Um, it's, it's a broader picture of you know, what, what do we owe each other socially. Well, that sounds very exciting, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep an eye out uh, for, for work on that. I've, I see that you've you've already had a, a paper appear recently. I'm forgetting the journal uh, on some of this on social deprivation. So I'll keep an eye out for more, and maybe we'll have you back if you are willing uh, to talk about that when the book <laughs> comes out on uh, new books in philosophy. But for now, thank you so much for for joining us, and thank you for your time. Oh, thank you, Bob. I appreciate the discussion. All right, take care now. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Kimberly Brownlee of the University of Warwick. We've been talking about her new book, Conscience and Conviction, The Case for Civil Disobedience, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>